them to go. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the end of the age. This is the gospel of Christ. As a response, I think. Uh, should we do that again? There is. The, this is the gospel of Christ. Praise to you, O Christ. Do be seated, please. So as we uh, sit there, we bow our heads in prayer. Father, we want to pray today that you would teach us that our hearts will be stirred, our minds informed, and that our lives will be uh, shaped and directed by the truth of who you are, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. It's lovely to be with you. Thank you very much for your invitation and your welcome. Trinity Sunday is the climax of the church's year. You probably know that from Advent Sunday, four weeks before Christmas, until now, the story of Christ's life the church retells every year. At least the Anglicans do or are supposed to do. And it's a wonderful thing to do because each year you go through these great moments in Christ's life and we allow them to intersect with our lives today. But the climax is today. We've had it all. Christ has risen, he has been ascended, he's ascended to the highest place. And we now stand back and we are absolutely amazed. We're in awe of what it is that God has done. Please don't let your faces give away the fact that you're not caught up in that as well. <laughs> it is a wonderful thing that God has done. And to stand back, and particularly to focus on, well, who is this God? Let us just look at who this God is that has been revealed to us in the coming of Christ. Now, luckily, we don't just have one Sunday to do it. <laughs> We've got now until next Advent to continue to reflect on it. So this is just the flavor, the taster of what it's about. And... Uh, I want to start, because I think for many people, when we talk about the Trinity, Tom, I'm going to need you back at the piano, if that's all right. Um, when we start talking about the Trinity, many people go into kind of neutral. Trinity, uh-oh, that's pretty technical. That's for the theologians. Don't confuse me with any of that. And when I heard um, this as a way of explaining to us, just really to get off the starting blocks, how it is that God can be one, which he is, but also three persons, so will you listen to this, Tom? If you could play one, two, three, and then a chord. You see, three individual notes, but when they're played together, you can still hear the individual notes, but you hear them also as a chord. And once more, because it's such fun. 
You get the hang of it? Have you heard that before? It's a very good way of engaging, understanding, getting off just off the starting blocks to realize that it is possible for there to be three individual things, persons in the case of God, but also one at one and the same time. It is conceptually, if you like, possible. So having established that, I hope, I want now to use the musical theme to develop how it is that, in a sense, God communicates to us what it's like. Because Trinity is all about God being personal. Those notes, as they're played together, in a very simple way, are are individuals and distinct persons. Obviously, with God, it's a much richer idea because it's about personhood, not just about individual different things. And it immediately, the Trinity immediately tells us that God is not a force. God is not ultimate reality. God is not a power, although in a sense he's all of those. He's first and foremost personal. He's personal. And he's identifiable by characteristics that he in his grace has chosen to show us. He's mysterious, but he's made himself known to us. He's knowable. Not just knowing about him, but we can know him. And of course, the second thing that that image shows us that uh, the chord, the three notes in the chord show us, is that God is relational. The Trinity takes us to the truth. God isn't just personal, but he's relational. That if you like, he is in relationship with himself. It's wonderful to know that at the heart of the universe is relationship. It's not competition. It's not somebody forcing out somebody trying to gain power. It's relational, drawing people together. And he is in communion with himself. He's connected. He is in combination with other. And the supreme characteristic, the word we give to describe that relationship is love. And not just a wooshy, ooey love, but a love which is strong and characterized by self-giving, the love we see in Christ. And that love is all about drawing us as to become part of the life of the Trinity. That's what the gospel has as its climax. Not us standing outside and admiring and worshipping a God, however wonderful he may be, but of allowing ourselves to participate, to become part of it, all by his grace. And the first thing that I think we need to start to do is to recognize, to learn to recognize the different sounds, as it were, that the music makes. As I said, I'm going to continue the musical metaphor. Because when we hear the sounds, learn to recognize the sounds we're looking out for are sounds which are first joyful. God is characterized by joy. And the life of the Trinity is joyful. You know, remember when Jesus is, is told that he shouldn't be, he should be encouraging his disciples to fast as the disciples of John the Baptist fast. And he sort of looks and says, well, how on earth when the bridegroom is in your midst can the people fast? You've got to feast. The prodigal son, the greatest perhaps of the stories which Christ shows, tells us about what God is like, has as its climax a party. The father, coincidentally, no, deliberately, is one who throws a party. And there is joyful music going on in the background, which is what winds up the older brother so much. And Christ's life was made up of feasting. He's accused of being a wine-bibber. 
He liked a drop of wine. He was a party-goer. I, I, I saw a glimpse of this uh, a couple of years ago. I did a marriage, uh, a wedding, of um, an American girl who's a Christian and a Jewish boy, Algerian in origin, but French-speaking. And they invited to the wedding. It was a Christian wedding, but they invited over Rabbi Philippe, who came over from just outside Paris. And Rabbi Philippe um, came into his own in the reception in the party afterwards, went over to one of the local hotels, and every time there was a lull in the proceedings, Rabbi Philippe would be the one to get things going again with a clap, with a song. He was a real party. This is a rabbi, a religious person. And the, the best bit came when they were cutting the cake. And there they were in the middle. I think it's a Jewish way of doing things. They had the cake being cut. And the rabbi was the one who started to get everybody dancing. And you know the first person he grabbed to join in the dance? Me. <laughs> I won't say I don't do dancing, but it's not my strong suit, as my wife who's here will tell you. But he got me going. We did a jig round the table together. Now that's the atmosphere of the joy of the kingdom. We should be party goers. I don't mean, you know, in a trivial sense, but there is this streak in the Christian because it's what God is like that loves to celebrate. It's joyful, and that's what's at the heart of the character of God. Triumphant. It's another note that we hear when that music is played. We hear a joyful note. We hear a triumphant note. Do you know that uh, amazing bit of uh, music? It's uh, Nabucco. Is that Verdi? I looked to somebody who can tell me. But the March of the Hebrew Slaves, a very well-known bit of music, if I was organized and I'd have it now playing. But it's an amazingly triumphant bit of music. And there's loads of music, which you probably know, which is all about victory of triumph. And that is the, another note that you hear when you listen and learn to listen to what God is like. That here you have the triumph of God, of Christ seated at the right hand of the Father. Here is one of us, one, a man, Christ Jesus, who has triumphed that the pain and separation which death brings, all of us dread that that will be permanent. We will be separated from those who we love and who love us. The deepest pain the world knows. And yet Christ has conquered death. It means that is not the last word. And the Christian is one whose hope is firm that that is not, death is not the last word. Nor is it the last word when there's a no-go area in a relationship. All of us have relationships which have gone wrong. Often those we were once very close to, that things have broken down and we cannot see how we can ever probably even talk to them again, certainly with any closeness. Christ who has conquered sin, Sin which separates people, fractures relationships. Christ has conquered sin. And the note of victory that that music brings is that's not the last word. Not only can he redeem it, and God willing, we will know that redemption in this world. But when Christ returns, we will have a complete union with those from whom we've been estranged. That is at the heart of the Christian hope. And the victorious Christ is the one who also judges. When you see, and I can't comment on the accuracy of the reports, but if it's true what we see going on in Burma, if it's true what we see happening in Zimbabwe, 
We need to know, don't we, that there is one who judges. One who judges evil and brutality. And that is going to be Jesus Christ, the man seated at the right hand of God. But judgment always starts with me, and until I can recognize the beast which lies in the basement of my own life, till I'm willing to open that door and to let the light of Christ shine into that basement, I'm in no position to comment on other people's injustices and evil. But the note which we hear is a note of triumph, of victory, that opening that door is a safe place. Christ has the victory. And the third note that comes out as we listen to the Trinity, there are many others. The third I mentioned, it's a sorrowful note, a note of sorrow. We think of suffering and pain as a problem to be removed. It's something we need to solve, to sort. And if I can't do it, then I need somebody who can sort it for me. And of course there is truth in that. There are things that can be done, but the truth we need to know first and foremost is that deep in the heart of God is suffering. The cross establishes beyond doubt in my mind that suffering is not something that has just been swept under the carpet of dealt with, removed to a distant place, but suffering is at the heart of the character of God, and there it remains. It hasn't gone away. It's there, accompanying love. And that is not just an intellectual device to get around suffering. It doesn't answer the problem. But what it does say to me is that in the sufferings which I experience and that you experience, we can have a confidence that God is with us in them. We who are joined in the life of the Trinity, it's not that God comes down into our lives so much that we are lifted up into the life of God, that lifted up there that we know there is one with us. That was powerfully illustrated for me this week, and some of you may have heard the interview, it was on Monday, with um, Peter Wolf, <laughs> Peter and the Wolf, no, Peter Wolf, who um, was, um, has written a book about restorative justice. He's a criminal from um, a prison background, but has been involved in a movement as, of restorative justice where the perpetrator of the crime meets the victim. And in that encounter and meeting, something new happens. And Peter Wolf is very eloquent about it. And I'm going to read to you the quote which I noted down. I thought it was so powerful. He'd, well, this is just what he said. It tells its own story. The doctor, this is obviously in the interview he had, the doctor told me he had split up with his former partner and he was trying to make a go of his life. I stole this laptop, uh, laptop computer, and on this laptop computer was his life's work, records of his patients, a thesis, what he'd been doing for some study, and I'd stolen it. I broke his door down and stolen a laptop computer, and to my shame, I'd sold it for two bags of heroin. And suddenly the doctor, he cried. To be in a room experiencing another human being's pain. More than that, you're sharing pain. Because we can understand it logically, pain and harm. But to be part of it, to be sharing it, is a different thing altogether. Now, isn't that an amazing insight into compassion, God's compassion? Because we think of God's compassion, perhaps, as the one who understands our pain, who sympathizes and empathizes, but it's much more than that. It's one, like Peter Wolf describes, who is with us in the same room 
with us in our pain. We are at the, drawn into the life of the Trinity where sorrow is one of the notes that is played. Well, how do we learn to hear, to recognize these notes? The drift is always away from this, this sort of thing. We don't naturally get drawn to the life of God. It's not natural or obvious. It's as though the piano gets out of tune. We sing off key. The tempo goes out. Eugene Peterson, whose writings I think are brilliant, in a book called Christ Plays in 10,000 Places, uh, talks about the fear of the Lord, an old phrase that you'll pick up many times in the scriptures. The fear of the Lord being the place we need to turn to learn and to grow more and more aware about what this God is actually like. The fear of the Lord teaches us the Trinity. He says, it is the stock, fear of the Lord is the stock biblical phrase for the way of life that is lived responsively and appropriately before who God is, he who is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And learning fear of the Lord makes us sensitive. So when you hear that reading in Isaiah 40, for example, the other great readings of the transcendence, the greatness of God, we notice those readings. It registers. It's not just empty words. There's something that resonates deeply. Yes, that's what he's like. Fear of the Lord teaches us that I am very small, that I am actually dispensable, that I am not necessary, that I can't change myself and I can't change the world, that what I think actually is not very important, that at my most fundamental, I'm exactly the same as every other human being on the planet. And it teaches me that actually, despite all that, I crave my deepest craving is to be at the heart of a little world that I create for myself. Fear of the Lord teaches me that, but at the same time it teaches me. And we learn this in worship, not just singing, but the whole package. Words, actions, music, the whole experience of worship. And we learn it in prayer. Individuals giving themselves before God. The best way I know is to take a passage of scripture to read it and then silently meditate, to place yourself under for 10, 15, 30, whatever minutes you can spare, under the words of Scripture. But we learn fear of the Lord, not just randomly, but in worship and in prayer. We learn that God is God and that I am not God. We learn that I am not just noticed, but I'm known. I am loved as I most truly am. I don't have to prove anything. I'm loved. And I learned that I am the same as my fellow human beings. And what all of us have to offer that will be most valuable always is ourselves, offered as a gift each day in the service of God through acts and deeds expressed to our fellow human beings. That is what we learn when fear of the Lord begins to, we engage with fear of the Lord. Well, as I finish, I use music, the experience of music, to illustrate primarily what I'm saying, to try and help us to engage more with what it means for God, the truth of God, Father, Son, and Spirit, and he who longs for us to participate. 
But the other image that's really beautiful that Trinity throws up is dancing. I've already mentioned that with Rabbi Philippe. Pericoresis. I can't pronounce it. Pericoresis. It's a Greek word. I should know because I can speak a bit of Greek. But it's a fancy word that means dancing that the church theologians in the early years used. It's not random dancing. This is more like, I suppose, English, you know, square dancing or Kayleys or Scottish country dancing, organized dances where there's movement that is arranged. And they saw in that a beautiful imagery that it's as though we are, each of us, we start and maybe we find ourselves often on the side of the room. We then see a finger beckoning towards us from the dance. We are invited to join in me. I don't know the steps. I'm no good at dancing. No, you, come in. It's a summons as well. It's not just an optional invitation. It's a summons. And it's a very serious step to decline that invitation. Because once you start, you're going to need to stick in there and to pick yourself up and keep going. But as you do start, you find you have a place in that dance. You start to pick up the steps. You begin to move and look like a dancer. You know the way ballet dancers have that lovely way of holding themselves. Back straight, head held high. Lovely way their feet move. It's beautiful. But you begin to look like that as the music gets into you and you begin to experience a new freedom. It's all about a way of living. Joining the dance is living Christ-like living, a heart which is touched by the self-giving love of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, utterly secure in the fact that we are loved. We're comfortable to live in our own skin. We don't wish we were somebody else. We find ourselves connected to our fellow humans, and each day we offer ourselves we offer ourselves to our fellow beings in the service of Christ. We long to see others drawn into the dance. We go to all sorts of unlikely places and there find others who want to join in the dance. And as we do that, we pass on everything we know. But more than that, we point them to Jesus Christ, the one for when they hear the music of heaven, they too can know the same freedom that we've tasted. Amen.